Grace and peace to you from God and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to take a quick journey with me back to my bedroom in the fall of 1970. Scary. Messy. There I am, sitting cross-legged on the floor with a guitar across my right leg that a good friend had loaned to me just days before to see if I wanted to learn how to play. I am loudly and horribly beating the strings with a pick and singing pretty loudly. My father opens the door and says, either that is enough or you need to tone it down. It seems he didn't like Bob Dylan. I chose the latter, and I finished the third verse of the song that I was singing from Bob Dylan. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand for the times they are a-changing. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I stand before you this day having fully acknowledged in the last week that the times really are a-changing. And we live in a very rapidly changing world, which I have been anxious and fearful about for a number of years. When I started working on this sermon, the five verses from 1 Kings about Isaiah jumped out at me, but not just these five verses. I couldn't understand why the lectionary only allowed these five verses out of one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. And I want to summarize that story for you in a fairly quick way this morning so that we can put it into context and so that the times they are changing makes a point, and you understand where I'm coming from. It just grasped me the whole story, and I said the times are changing. <clears throat> Isaiah was one of the earliest and greatest prophets of the old of the Hebrew people. He lived, <clears throat> excuse me, he lived in the northern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King um, Ahab, and um, Jezebel was his wife. And Jezebel was from a faraway land, a foreign land. And she had convinced Ahaz, Ahab, either through the bedtime pillow talk that we all know about, or just by wearing him down, that it was okay to have household gods again, and especially the god Baal in their midst, statues. And so um, the, the prophets of Baal had, had received some support from the state, and Jezebel took it a step forward. She started persecuting all the prophets of Yahweh, sometimes in massive executions, and sometimes one by one as they were found, God raises Elijah up to go and call Ahab into accountability and to call the people, the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, back into relationship with God and right relationship with each other. There are 450 prophets of Baal in the land in Elijah, the only one who's willing to come forward at least. And so Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest to see which God is greater, Yahweh or Baal. Here's the deal. Two, two bulls are brought forward. The prophets of Baal choose the first one. They build their altar. They collect their wood. They sacrifice the bull. They place the bull on the altar, and they begin praying. Baal, send down fire. Send down fire. They pray, and they pray, and nothing happens. They pray, and they pray, and nothing happens. Noonday comes and nothing's happened. Elijah said, okay, you've had your turn. Now it's mine. And he gathers up 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. He places and makes an altar. He gathers his wood. He sacrifices his bull. He places the bull on the altar. And then he does three more things. 
he goes and digs a trench around the altar. And he places in that trench a seed offering. And then he tells the Hebrew people around him to go fill four jars of water and pour them on the altar. Not once, not twice, but three times. Twelve jars of water. And then he prays to Yahweh. Whoosh comes down the, the flame and it consumes the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, the grain offering, and the trench. Gone. Gone. Elijah knew what would happen, that this would show the absolute inability, the absolute weakness of Baal, and the absolute strength and power of Yahweh. The Hebrew people gather up the 450 prophets, and they take them off to meet their Baal. I'm sorry, their maker. Nobody got it at 9 o'clock either. <laughs> I thought it was cute. Anyway. When Jezebel hears what's happened, she sends a message to, to uh, Elijah and says, what you have done to my prophets, I am going to do to you. And that's where this morning's Old Testament reading kicks in. He's terrified, and so he flees. And he flees, and he stops, and he realizes that he has transgressed, and he wants to die. He's done exactly what his ancestors have done before him, and so he lies down to die. But God's not through with him yet. God sends an angel twice to feed him, to strengthen him, to journey on to Mount Horeb, and he does. Here's the rest of the story. When he gets to Mount Horeb, he hides in a cave. He's that fearful. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, What are you doing here? And he professes his brokenness, his sin, his transgression. And the word of the Lord says to Elijah, Go and stand outside and wait for the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Sure enough, in a few moments, a powerful wind that scatters the stones comes through, but God is not in it. And then an earthquake which splits the stones, but God's not in the earthquake. And then a roaring fire that destroys, but God's not there. And then as the King James, the, the New Revised Version says, and there was sheer silence. I prefer the new, uh, the King James Version on this one. As God comes in a still, small voice. A still, small voice. And says to Elijah, this is what you do next. And Elijah follows the Lord's instructions. God has not deserted him. God does not desert us. I've just come back from the 25th... Um, festival gathering of the network of biblical storytellers. I've been a part of that network since 2006. And what I just did is not biblical storytelling. It's a summary of the story. This is the second continuing education event I've attended since Easter. And it's interesting to me that both of them has focused on the times they are changing. The first one was uh, the National Episcopal Preaching Conference. And this one uh, an Episcopalian who some of you may know, uh, an author and a scholar, Phyllis Tickle, was the keynote speaker. And she spent her time teaching us about what is happening in the world about us. It's known, in her words, as the great emergence. Or in a scholar's words, that's, that's a title they've now given into it. You may have heard of the emerging church, and that's a constituent uh, part of this, but not anywhere near 
um, the what's happening, the part. It's just a small part. It's an expression of Christianity. I'll say a little bit more. What is happening around us now, and we've been aware of it, or maybe subconsciously, is a part of a 500-year cycle that both the Christian and the, uh, the, the Jewish, the Judeo-Christian tradition, if you will, has experienced since the beginning of God's uh, presence with us. And interestingly enough, the, the um, Islamic community is experiencing, experiences it about every 500 years too, except they're 650 years behind the rest of us, and so they're out of sync. But it's a, it's a, it's a pattern that has been identified in the past, and it's with us right now. Um, it is a, it, she traced the cycle back through the Reformation and back through the great divide of the East and West Church and back beyond that to Council of Nicaea and period of time after that and back to the very earliest church where the disciples and those who had come to the Christian faith had the same kind of crisis in the first century. It is absolute. It is across the board. We can't stop it. It is here. It is now. And it is the transition of everything we know, social, economic, um, everything we know, societal, social media, the way we communicate. And it's been about for a little, it's been about for a number of years. Some folks place it having started on September the 11th. Some folks place it earlier than that. But we're in the midst of it. We're in the midst of it. And like it or not, she kept saying, it is here. And it is a part of our responsibility as the Christian community to be the, to be the church in the midst of it. And this is an ecumenical gathering. And here are a few of the tidbits that sort of help us realize what's going on. There are five times more words in the English language right now than when William Shakespeare was writing. Five times. There is an emergence of a new economy. We're all aware of this. The worldwide economy where, to quote her, Spain and Greece get a cold, and then we at least get a cold, or even worse, we get pneumonia economically. The information that's available to us to process doubles every nine months and 27 or 22 days. I don't remember which for sure. Doubles. New information that we have to process. Some two-thirds of the human genome, this should spare us, genome is owned by private corporations. And the last that I want to share with you has a, a, a word that I've not heard before. Some of you may be computer folks. It's called a petaflop. Last year, the first computer able to accomplish a petaflop was built. And this year, there will be 12 predictions or 12 more computers that can do a petaflop. Now, a flop is this kind of a, a, it's, a it's an operation. Um, it's a floating point operation. And it has a decimal. 2.0 times 2.0 equals 4.0. That's one flop. A petaflop is 1,000 trillion, 1,000 trillion such operations in one second. One second. And there are those, because this is unfolding before us, that now tell us that we live in the post-human age rather than just in the postmodern age. That's scary to me. One tr thousand trillion operations per second, if I understand what a flop is. That's a long way from my slide rule in freshman chemistry in college. That was 1972, two years after I invited you to go to. Now, we, 
Have I made you anxious yet? <laughs> oh, she went on for three hours. Now, in the midst of these kinds of changes, and I'm, I'm naming them for the first time for myself in some ways. I'm doing them in there. Um, we can now label, I can label for myself why I'm anxious. There's too much information. There's additional pressure for us professionally um, to accomplish more, to do more. It's not quite so bad in the church and wonderful place to work, but, you know, you probably have a lot more pressure than I do, but I still feel the pressure to bring technology here and that kind of thing. Our personal family, um, our children, we can't keep up with what they're learning. They're learning this much further than we ever learned. Um, that we wish for the good old days. And the good old days were not a century ago or 50 years ago. They're a lot closer than that now. A lot closer than that now when we remember the good old days. There are new and different demands on our time and energy. There are shifting markets and just ever-increasing, downright ever-increasing demands on our time, more things to do and less time to seem to be able to do it in. In many ways, it's just like Elijah with the whirlwind and the and the earthquake and the fire and the fear that springs out of that. What's going on? Where is my cave? Where can I run to hide? Where can I run to be safe? We cry out as we run for the hill spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically. But guess what? God doesn't want us to be there in that cave and will not leave us there. That's not where we're supposed to be, not as the people of God and not as the church. And I don't mean the Episcopal church. I mean the gathered church around the world. God comes and asks us, what are you doing here? Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I'm still in charge? Don't you know ultimately, ultimately you have nothing to fear? Didn't I send Jesus to show you how much I loved you and how much you mean to me? And maybe we can't hear God's voice in the midst of all this, but maybe somebody will touch us on the shoulder and tell us they love us, or maybe they'll just tell us. Maybe we can hear their voice only. Or maybe we're called to reach our hand just outside of that cave and to let God touch us or someone else touch us. Or maybe the best thing to do is just take time, sit down, build it into our lives more and more to sit and be still and know that God is God. God is God. We have nothing to fear. The time is changing, my friends. Whether we like it or not, I have to say it because she said it so much. But the good news, there's lots of good news in it. For the first time, according to Phyllis Tickle, we as human beings are aware of what is happening. We're not just going to blindly stumble through it and begin killing one another because there are differences among us, as happened in the Reformation. We have an awareness we have a knowledge as it begins to unfold, and we can influence and impact the world around us. It's, not, it's a chance to be a part of it rather than let it take over our lives and our world for a period of time. I don't think that it's just a chance. I believe it's an absolute responsibility that we do that as followers of Jesus. Let me return to Phyllis Tickle's perspective on this, the good news as she shared with us. First is we need not panic or be threatened or be fearful. It is life unfolding as it should. It's a natural cycle of the human race, whether we understand it or not. It's not the first time this has happened. The second thing is 
Nothing will be lost that we know. It may be transformed or changed somewhat, but these walls are going to stand. This church is going to stand. This congregation is going to continue to move forward. The Episcopal Church is going to continue to move forward. The Christian community is going to continue to move forward. What's happening in the emerging church, not the emergence, not the great emergence, in the emerging church is that God is weaving a new expression of Christianity into the river, a new, a new tributary. We may not understand it. It may not be who we are, but it's okay. Jesus said, if they ain't against us, they're for us. They're very, the, emergence, the emerging church is very different than who we are, but we need not, we need not be threatened by it. Finally, we are in a unique place. One of the precepts that she based it on is that the narrative will tell us and keep us in the truth while the facts will deceive us. And we know the narrative. We know the story. And we are keepers, not defenders, not protectors of the story. We are keepers of the story. And we're called to proclaim that from the rooftops. We're called to live that out in our lives so the world can see Christ shining through us. We are called, I want to say it again, to be keepers. We know, we know the story. We know creation. We know God created everything. We know God gave us everything. We know about the fall. We know about our brokenness and our sinfulness. We know about forgiveness. We know about repentance, and which is before forgiveness. We know about redemption, and we know about resurrection. And that's the narrative that God has given us to share with the world. That is the narrative that we are keepers of, but also proclaimers of. Again, as we make these transition, it is the story, the narrative, that will keep us in the truth, not the facts. And I want to, I want to take time to do this. After the 9 o'clock service, somebody said, what do you mean the narrative? And I said, well, the biblical story. And what do you mean the facts aren't true? And I said, well, for instance, I, I'll, I'll do this. This pulpit, centuries ago, we believed it to be solid and unmoving. That was the fact. Now we know that the molecules in this pulpit are moving constantly. The world used to be flat. Remember? It's round. And it rotates rather than the sun. See how the facts can lead us away from the truth. So, my hope for us, my call to us, is to be open to the reality that God is doing new things in our midst and that we are a part of it. Not to be afraid of it. Not run away from it. But embrace it. It will change us, not, not adopt it, but at least learn about it and let it weave into our, our presence. Um, and we will come out, if we do that, better than we are, more knowledgeable than we, know, we are, more in the knowledge of the Lord. I would remind you that the Roman Catholic Church, which was the last big time that this, uh, some kind of emergence or change or major paradigm shift is what it is, happened. The Roman Catholic Church survived that quite well and is still alive and well today doing its thing. 
what is happening now is Protestantism, and we are Protestant. We say we're Protestant. We were Anglicans. We'll survive this. We may be changed. We may be a little different, but we'll still be here. We'll still be able to worship the way we want to because of the great nation in which we live. But something new is happening. God is doing a new thing. And when we proclaim the story, when we don't run to the cave, and when we climb up on the rooftop, we are fulfilling our baptismal covenant to proclaim the good news of Christ. We're also becoming, I believe, ourselves growing into the full stature of Christ. And finally, we embrace God's presence and doing a new thing in the world. I'd remind you the words of Jesus. He said, fear not. I am with you. There is nothing to fear. Amen.